Good afternoon, everyone. Well, I'm glad to see so many hardy souls braving the remnants of remnants of Ida. It's not easy calling this much rain remnants of anything, but and I was happy to see many of you come in the door two by two today. That's great. <laughs> we are sort of in an arc-shaped room, if you want to look around and we did use gopher wood on the wall. So anyhow, well, welcome to another banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum at the VHS. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. I think it's fair to say that most everyone here knows the exciting story of the first class clash of ironclad warships. It took place right here in Virginia, in Hampton Roads in 1862. Later, the CSS Virginia was destroyed by retreating Confederates, and the Union ironclad Monitor was lost at sea. Our speaker today will demonstrate that if the Monitor ended her working career in a gale off Cape Hatteras, her story did not end there. The site where the ship went down was discovered in 1973 and established as a national marine sanctuary in 1975. It's been the subject of intense recovery operations by NOAA and the U.S. Navy ever since. And you can now see the results of these fascinating finds today at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, which I'm very pleased to say is a co-sponsor of this lecture today. And I want to urge you to visit what is really a true jewel of the Commonwealth just down I-64. There are brochures for the Mariner's Museum outside in our lobby, and I hope you'll take one home with you. On On that note, and to thank the Mariner's Museum and let them welcome one of their own, I'd like to turn the proceedings over to Tim Sullivan, who just finished his successful tour of duty as president and CEO of the Mariners Museum. So, Tim? Thank you all. Thank you all for coming, and I want to express particular appreciation to the, uh, to the leadership of the Virginia Historical Society um, for helping make this uh, collaboration possible. Um, our two institutions, I think, are extraordinary in many ways. We share um, deep commitment to telling stories of our history. Uh, We share, I think, even deeper commitment to doing all that we do at the highest possible level of excellence. And so this engagement together, uh, I hope, will be the beginning and not the end of other opportunities for collaboration that would be for the mutual benefit of our two institutions. I do want to mention, we have a wonderful museum shop at the Mariner's Museum. Uh, uh, I left my job as president of the museum on the 1st of November, so the exact date of our blockbuster sale uh, escapes me, but we can can provide that information to any of you who wish to to go down 64, and uh, we'll meet or match any reduction in any piece of merchandise in either shop. So I do what there's I have a lot of old friends here, but there's I want to particularly recognize Brent Halsey, whose leadership role in this institution and in the Mariners Museum perhaps makes him uh, unique among those uh, today's in today's audience. And he was very important in helping get today's program off the ground and established. So, Brent, thank you for all you've done for the Virginia Historical Society, for the Mariners Museum and Lord knows how many other good causes. Thank you. I was asked to come to be president and CEO of the Mariners Museum uh, by people who had immense faith uh, in the possibility of someone who'd spent a lifetime in higher education managing to survive the museum world. Um, I have survived. I'm here. Uh, but let me tell you, there were some close calls along those three. There's, while there are similarities between universities and museums, um, curators are not dissimilar to faculty members, um, with all that that, uh, all that, that signifies. Uh, good and sometimes challenging, but that, the culture is just different, and it took me a while uh, to manage to navigate it. Um, uh, my tenure there was intended to be a three-year tenure, I had a certain set of responsibilities 
uh, to fulfill. I hope I did. And the one thing that I did commit to the Board of Trustees when they asked me to be uh, chairman or president was to find a really, really powerful successor who could lift the Mariner's Museum up beyond even its current level of eminence and make it better known, not just in our country, but in the world, because we are really uh, an international uh, jewel. We were fortunate uh, to find uh, a former member of the museum staff, Dr. William Coger, uh, to serve as president and CEO of the museum. Bill has uh, got deep roots in Kentucky, spent a lot of time in Texas and is growing up, earned a, a doctorate in history from Oxford, was for many years a professor of history in the U.S. Naval Academy, was director of the uh, Naval Academy Museum, came to the Mariner's Museum, left to help Mystic Seaport. Some of you know that up in New England. Um, I can give you uh, the elements of his vita, but they don't really capture the, the, the sense of... Uh, commitment to uh, matters maritime, the sense of commitment to making the Mariner's Museum the great place that uh, it is and making it even better still. Uh, he's going to do a great job. He will be heard from, and uh, I think he's already got everyone's name and address here, and you'll be hearing from us uh, in due course. It's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, the brand-new president and CEO of the Mariner's Museum, Dr. William Coger. Bill? Good afternoon, everybody. Tim, thank you very much for those uh, very kind words. It's a great thrill for me to be back in the Commonwealth, be associated with the Mariner's Museum and the wonderful staff and collections that is the Mariner's Museum, and have an opportunity to meet so many of you and be connected with Virginia Historical Society. It's a great thrill and honor. Uh, I actually think, as a naval-slash-maritime historian, that this weather is perfectly appropriate. <laughs> I'd be very disappointed if it was sunny. So driving up here, despite the spray from the big semis going by me, I thought, well, this is a perfect environment to talk about the USS Monitor. And we have an ideal person to tell you about this extraordinary vessel and its extraordinary history. Um, Anna Holloway is a native of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and she received two bachelor's degrees from UNC Greensboro, one in English and one in classical studies. She then pursued and received a master's degree in Tudor Stewart studies from the College of William and Mary, and she's completing her doctoral dissertation also from the College of William and Mary, if, if I could get her to take the requisite Fridays off to complete it. <laughs> now, given Anna's subjects of study, one would think that she would follow a rather traditional academic professional career. Well, one thing one should always appreciate about Anna Holloway is that you should never expect anything normal or routine. Anna began her professional career as a musician and producer of bands, as a manager of a record store, and as an on-air personality, a fancy word for a disc jockey. Now, this is not surprising she, since she once described to me one of the watershed moments of her life as going to a Led Zeppelin concert. <laughs> she came to Virginia and served as an interpreter at Jamestown Settlement. She taught at the College of William and Mary and at Hampton University. She then went to the Chrysler Museum as manager of school tour programs. And then, fortunately for us, Anna joined the Mariner's Museum as director of education and interpretation, then as curator of the USS Monitor Center, she was promoted to chief curator and is now vice president of collections and programs. Anna was and is the real sheet anchor for the Mariner's Museum's Monitor Center. Few know as much about the revolutionary ironclad monitor and especially the human drama of the vessel as Anna Holloway does. And as such, I am delighted to introduce Anna whose topic is, So Ends This Day, an illustrated update on the life and times of the USS Monitor, 1861 to yesterday. Anna? Thank you. 
Well, hey, y'all. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here. I've been looking forward to this ever since, I don't know, several months, almost a year ago. Um, and uh, it's good to see, well, I'm not seeing so many familiar faces now as it's all getting dark, but uh, it's good to see so many friends and uh, to make some new ones today. Well, I will explain the title of my presentation momentarily, but first, I'm going to talk just a little bit about the vessel that uh, you've come here to hear about um, in specific. Now, a lot of you are thinking so much has been written about the USS Monitor since her appearance on the waters of Hampton Roads that it would probably take more time to read all that's been written than the time she actually existed on this planet above the water. But um, there's a lot of ink spilled about the Monitor, and you're probably thinking, is there anything new that she can tell us? Well, yes, there is, and uh, there are many new words to be said about her. But words are well and good and fine, and I will be using a lot of them today. But uh, I'm going to use my own and others, and sometimes, though, I'm going to have to let the vessel speak for herself, and she is hardly a mute vessel. But I want to stop here just for a moment and say she. Yes, I know the U.S. Navy did away with that pronoun for vessels a few years ago, but it seems to me somehow wrong to take that away from the monitor. It removes the soul from our little monitor, that particular singular vessel. Although I got to say, the monitor was not a delicate girl by any means. She drank, she smoked, she belched, she roared. She reeled and staggered like a drunk man. And I'm just using a few words that other people have used about her. She went by several names besides Monitor. She was called Erickson's Folly, a tin can, a rat trap, a cheese box on a raft. Yet somehow, through all this, she did become the hope of a nation. And she was the home for some 108 men over the course of her short career above the waves. And she's now the nursery for countless creatures aquatic over the course of a century and a half, serving very proudly, I might add, as America's first national marine sanctuary under the auspices of NOAA, who are also known as the weather people. <clears throat> they didn't exactly cooperate with us today with the weather, <laughs> but uh, they, they are in charge of the National Marine Sanctuary Program. Monitor, as I said, was the first. And so you could say that the Monitor also gave birth to 12 other sanctuaries and uh, marine monuments scattered around the globe. These combined take up more space than the National Park Service does. It's just a little bit harder to visit them. Um, but the Monitor lies uh, 16 miles off the coast of Cape Hatteras, 240 feet down. So you can go visit her if you get a permit from NOAA, but you can also come and visit her at the Mariner's Museum and the USS Monitor Center. Well, I hope everybody in this room knows what she did. But just in case, I'm going to give you the very fast version of how she came to be. Now, the first thing I'm going to have to do, though, is I'm going to have to start the Civil War. Now, the thing is, is that that's not going to be too hard because for a lot of people, I'm sure we've all met those people for whom it hasn't ended yet. So uh, it's not too hard to start it again. But, okay, boom, the Civil War has started, and Virginia has now seceded, as you see there on the screen. Um, now, there's a lot um, I'm going to run through here very quickly. I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, some of the events that fall throughout uh, 1861. <laughs> But uh, Lincoln declares a blockade of the southern states in April of 1861. And um, because of the secession of Virginia and the blockade, what happens is you have the most wonderful dry dock and naval yard sitting in Hampton Roads in the midst of what is now Confederate territory, Gosport Navy Yard. April 20th, 1861, Federals there at Gosport do burn the Navy Yard in an attempt to uh, remove the possibility of the Confederates being able to use it. Unfortunately for the Union troops, uh, there were a lot of Confederates in the Navy Yard who made sure that things didn't blow up exactly all the way. Um, and so eventually you, the Confederates have on hand a dry dock, uh, ordnance, and the burned-out hulk of the USS Merrimack, a steam-screw frigate, uh, one of the pinnacles of U.S. naval architecture um, up until that point, burned to the waterline sitting at the bottom of the Elizabeth River. 
What's so amazing to folks who come to the museum is they find out that uh, the Confederacy sent a diving team, a Baker and Company, a salvage company out of Norfolk, Virginia, to dive on the wreck of the, the uh, Merrimack in 1861. The divers went down, plugged the holes that were in her hull, pumped the water out, and raised her up, and there she was. Um, and so that was in May of 1861. Now, the Confederacy did not have a, a navy, precisely, at this point. Um, but they did have a secretary of the Navy, Stephen Russell Mallory, who did say, um, with great prescience, um, I consider the possession of an iron-armored vessel to be a matter of the first necessity. He had a plan, as did uh, three gentlemen by the name of uh, Williamson, Brooke, and Porter. I know we've got some VMI people here. You all probably know who Brooke is. Um, but between the three, um, they did conceive of a, an iron-clad vessel and uh, realized that they had the bones of it there with the Merrimack. And so they used the burned-out hull of the Merrimack to recreate her um, like a phoenix rising out of the flames into the CSS Virginia. The Union response? Well, the first thing they did was panic, and uh, then they put an ad in the newspaper. Um, the, the Ironclad Navy Board um, was established uh, by, by, by Congress in July of 1861, and um, the three gentlemen placed on the Navy Board didn't, on the Ironclad Board, didn't realize they were on it until they were appointed um, and told they had to have a meeting the next day. Um, but they ad put an ad in the paper advertising for Ironclad steam vessels. Now, actually, it seems strange to me they're advertising um, to the Confederacy that they're trying to build an ironclad, but whatever. Um, but uh, 16. Um, designs for ironclads come in to the U.S. Navy Ironclad Board for their consideration. Now, one of the gentlemen who sent a plan in didn't read the instructions and actually sent a plan in for a rubber clad. Presumably the balls would bounce off. Um, but in any event, um, they had about $1.5 million to spend on ironclad designs, and they chose two designs. And then to make a very long story quite short, um, a 17th plan came in over the transom. And this was a plan that uh, had been designed by the Swedish-American inventor John Erickson. Um, he had actually shopped this plan around to Napoleon III um, in France now, during the Crimean War. Um, he was turned down. But he did have the plan sitting kind of in a dusty box. And uh, it eventually made its way in front of not only the Ironclad Board, but also President Lincoln. That's the very, very short version of what happened. I could spend two hours talking about it, but we have a lot more to talk about today than that. Um, but eventually, the contract was signed for three ironclads, one of which was John Erickson's strange little contraption that uh, was initially called Erickson's Battery. That contract was signed October 4th of 1861. Um, and um, the thing is, John Erickson already had the plans ready. He had even started building the engine before the contract had been signed. He was that confident in his design. The keel was laid very quickly on October 25th of 1861 at Continental Iron Works in Brooklyn. The interesting thing about the monitor is that uh, she was built all over the place, all over the Northeast, um, from Troy and Albany, New York. We've found evidence now that parts of her were built in Connecticut, um, obviously in Manhattan and Brooklyn, and also her turret plates were made and rolled in Baltimore, Maryland. Remember, Baltimore did not go south. So really, she was farmed out to uh, industries all over the Northeast. That's why she was able to be built in 100 days, more or less. It depends on when you count from. But she was built quite quickly. December 31st, 1861 is an interesting date. That was the day, truly, that the Monitor came to life. That was the day her engines were fired for the very first time. And it would be very seldom that they were not running. In fact, if you look at that date, December 31st, 1861, you can fast forward to the same date in 1862 and realize that it's the perfect bookends for her life. Exactly one year. She came to life, and then she disappeared. 
Now, a lot of people want to know how she got the name Monitor. John Erickson named his uh, little ironclad this because she would prove a severe monitor to the Confederates as well as to those in Downing Street. He wanted the world to notice this ironclad and this new naval technology. And so, therefore, he christened her the Monitor. January 20th of 1862. She was launched just 10 days later on the 30th at Greenpoint. No one believed she would float except for John Erickson, who actually rowed her down the ways into the river. Now, what uh, you need to know is they also had boats standing by to fish him out of the water. Uh, They also had um, things there to help keep her afloat just for the press, and the press was all over this thing. I have a couple of my volunteers here in the audience who had been uh, researching a lot of the press accounts early on of the Monitor, and it is amazing the amount of ink spilled before she ever made it off the ways in Greenpoint. Um, But uh, there she was, advertised to the world that the Union had an ironclad, and she was the first one out of the gate. The new Ironsides and the Galena would follow her later on. Um, But uh, there she was in New York. Meanwhile, the CSS Virginia, and I'm sorry if you can't see that very well there, um, was commissioned um, as the Virginia, February 17th, 1862. She's truthfully the Merrimack up until that point, then she becomes the Virginia. You can call her either one for the men who sailed her, or steamed her, I should say, in the Battle of Hampton Roads called her the Merrimack more often than they called her the Virginia at the time. However, Virginia she was, Virginia born, Virginia raised, as one of her crew would say later on. Now, back to the title. I'm like one of those Hollywood movies where you're you're into the whole story for about 15 minutes before you get to the title of the movie. Well, here we are. It derives from a single entry. Whoops, there she's commissioned, sorry. It derives from a single entry in the Monitor's first logbook, which runs from February 26th through September 11th, 1862. That's when her final commanding officer, John Payne Bankhead, took command. So ends this day, the poetic phrase found in countless logbooks. It's a poetic phrase uh, from Captain's Courageous, even. You find it there in Disco's logbook. Um, But it does sum up one of the most eventful days in the Monitor's career. I've got part of that day up here on the screen now. And it might well have also ended the log entries on her last day if that log book was still with us above the, the waves. So what I've done for today is actually choose two historical days. And I will turn again and again to that phrase, yesterday, and I do mean that literally. I have things, pictures later on from yesterday. Um, For the Monitor story does continue on um, in our Batten Conservation Complex at the Mariners. So we're going to focus on two days, but I'll probably go off on different paths. Just please follow with me. So this first incredibly important date in the Monitor's history, you've probably already noticed it up there. It's not what you expected. March 3rd, 1862. That's the day I'd like to start with. And I want to do that, rather than starting with some singular moment in her career, this, this incredible battle that she has on March 9th, I thought we would begin more modestly with a brief glimpse into her logbook and paint a vivid picture for you using words and images, art and artifact, and show you that this ship definitely still has stories that she can tell. So, March 3rd, 1862, just a few days from making history, 27-year-old George Fredrickson puts pen to paper in the log. But before we talk about exactly what George wrote, I want to visit with him for a spell, as we say down south. He was born in Denmark, actually, um, in 1834 on the island of Min, and he came to America at some point. We're not sure exactly when. But shortly before he enters our story, he's living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's married to Magdalena Holst, and they have two very young children. And in December of 1861, he finds his way to New York, and he enlists in the Union Navy, becoming a master's mate eventually on the USS Monitor and one of the very first officers on board. He's very small. He's actually my height. 
5'5", he's got light blue eyes, light brown hair, and a fair complexion. Although here in this image taken in July of 1862, he's a bit sunburned. But on March 3rd, he leads off the log entry on the first watch. And um, I believe I had that up here for you. And um, you can see some of the words there that he writes. Um, it's a very, very impressive day. The monitor had been taken out for a test spin, quite literally, that morning. Her turret was turning, her guns were working, for the most part, and the new crew put her through her paces, steaming around in circles. In the East River, she turned, quote, with helm hard a starboard in four minutes and 15 seconds within a compass of three times her length. It's not too shabby, actually. Now, George Fredrickson had written this while he stood the afternoon watch. And during that time, you had Commodore Gregory, Chief Engineer Garvin, and Naval Constructor Hart coming on board to observe the experimental vessel's trial run. And the undercurrent, though, of this visit is not going to come out in the logbook entry. However, you have all these observers out there seeing if this thing's going to work. You can almost surely feel John Erickson's head spinning from his little office, as surely as the turret was spinning in this trial run. Now, you actually have to leave back to the 26th of February of 1862 to find that a defect had been found in the steering gear of the monitor. This was a defect that sent the monitor, and I quote one of the officers, quote, first to the New York side, then to the Brooklyn side, and so back and forth across the river, first to one side, then the other, like a drunken man on a sidewalk. So we brought up against the gas works with a shock that nearly took us from our feet. Not exactly an auspicious beginning. It also kept the monitor away from Hampton Roads for a few more days until John Erickson could correct the problem. Now the press was having a field day with what they called Erickson's Folly. And some of the naval yard actually intimated that they would pull the monitor back into dry dock and install a rudder that would work, not of Erickson's design. Well, given that John Erickson actually still owned the bulk of the ship, they had not paid him. They were not going to give him the final payment until the monitor had proven herself under enemy fire. That was part of the contract. So Erickson was not about to allow them to take something off that he had designed and put something on that some other guy had designed. He wasn't going to let that happen. He actually roared when he heard this. He's said to have uh, turned bright red and screamed, the monitor is mine, and I say it shall not be done. Put in a new rudder. They would waste a month in doing that. I will make her steer just as easily in three days. He was all the time making boasts like that, and quite frankly, he was always right. Um, the Navy brass were actually there on board to make sure he'd followed through with a boast, and of course he did. But that wasn't the only excitement on March 3rd. While the logbook reports all of these things, that the guns were tested that afternoon, what's not reported is what actually happened during the test firing. Now, I imagine some of you may know this, but uh, we're going to have to dig a little deeper into the records to uh, bring the rest of you here into the story. And we're going to have to step out inside the turret itself to find out a little bit about that. So I give you the turret of the USS Monitor. Now consider it. It stands nine feet high. It's made of eight concentric layers of one-inch thick iron, 192 plates in all. And I might add, we're going to have to take all 192 of them apart in conservation, and then put it back together. Um, the turret's 21 feet in diameter. Now, consider that Dahlgren sitting inside it. It's an 11-inch Dahlgren. It weighs about nine tons, fires a 165-pound shot, and is 13 feet long. 13 feet long. Consider that a beastie of this size needs an equal amount of room for recoil. Oops. <laughs> I'm going to do some math. Actually, I'm not. You'll just look at this, and uh, you see the problem. 
The first suggestion that was made was to, well, cut off part of the barrel. Then it won't need as much room. Not a very good idea, says John Dahlgren himself, because it's likely to become unstable and blow up. So that's not going to work. So putting a smaller gun in, not an option. The monitor needs the biggest firepower she can get. John Erickson wanted 13-inch Dahlgrens. He got 11-inch Dahlgrens, I should say. And there are two of them inside the turret. So John Erickson simply had to go back to the drawing board and invent something else. I give you the gun carriage of the USS Monitor, custom-made for the Monitor and the Monitor alone. There are only two of these in existence in the world. And they're sitting at the Mariner's Museum right now, so you've got to come see them. Um, now, this is where we kind of get into yesterday. I mean, I'm showing you here the original drawings of it. Um, the idea, and I've got to figure out where I put my pointer here. Um, the idea was that you had friction gears that would tighten with this uh, beautiful wheel here. And uh, what they would do is they would clamp down on wooden runners inside the turret and thus dampen the recoil and allow the gun to fire and not recoil the full 26 feet. Now, here you have one of the gun carriages in actuality at the Mariners. There's the wheel. This is upside down, as most things at the Mariners Museum are right now, as regards the monitor. <laughs> the monitor sank upside down, so most of her uh, large components are still upside down. That is, until, well, the day before yesterday. But you can see these fins here. These would clamp against those wooden um, runners there inside the turret and this would uh, help uh, add or subtract friction to allow the, the gun to recoil properly. So that's how it's supposed to work. Now here we have um, us turning these uh, carriages right side up, which is absolutely an amazing thing to watch. We all got the privilege of watching our staff uh, put together an engineering feat that John Erickson would be proud of. This happened actually the day before yesterday where that gun carriage is turned right side up. So we can not only uh, find out more about it, but we can also excavate the interior. And I was just uh, informed uh, yesterday that they actually found uh, a tool inside of the carriage. It's a, a long um, wooden-handled brush. Don't know what it does yet. Don't know what it's for yet, but that was just uh, discovered. So the monitor's always given up her secrets for us there. But here you see them turning it over and putting the gun carriage back into the tank. So, John Erickson designs things and they work. He's already proven that. Unfortunately for this gentleman right here, though, naval engineer Alvin Steimers, who served sort of as a project manager for the construction of the monitor, John Erickson had not, with these gun carriages, applied that very most important of engineering concepts. Righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. <laughs> so, turning the uh, wheel, as you see the actual wheel here in its conserved form, um, on carriage number one to the right to increase the friction did precisely the opposite. And one massive Dahlgren gun leaps from its carriage, crashes its cascabel into the bulkhead of the turret. Aha, thinks Steimers. Because the carriages appear to be mirror images of each other, gun two must be a righty-tighty. Those are not his exact words. But it wasn't. And now the shiny, brand-new monitor had two big dents inside her turret, exactly where they were not supposed to be. Those are dents that remain with us to this day. And here I have, crawling slowly onto the screen, an interior mosaic of the monitor. Now, if you want to be like most of the staff at the Conservation Lab at the Mariner's Museum, you're going to have to spend most of your time with your head cocked over like this because the turret's still upside down. But I'll try to get you oriented and show you right there. For all eternity is Alban Steimer's dent. And there is a corresponding one 
that's actually on the other end of the photo mosaic. Now that's where, you know, as Bill said, I, I'm into the human side of the story and this drama. I love that dent more than I can say because it really makes this jump out of a sterile page in a history book and become a real story with a real guy making a real big mistake and having us show it to thousands of visitors every year at the Mariner's Museum, we point out Steimer's Dent. Now, I think I have a log entry. We're back to our log book for March the uh, 3rd. Thick rainy weather, strong northeast wind. I can't imagine what that would be like. <laughs> Here's an interesting one. At 9 p.m., we released the wardroom steward. All right, there's got to be a story there. At 10 p.m., Norman McPherson and John Atkins deserted, taking the ship's cutter and left for parts unknown. <laughs> real story there. So ends this day. <laughs> so let's deconstruct this little entry here that our friend George Fredrickson wrote. So imagine you've got the guns doing things they shouldn't be. You've got the Navy brass there observing. You've got uh, this untried vessel with an untried crew while some of them had been blue water sailors, they certainly weren't ironclad sailors, at least not yet. So, while all this is happening, the weather, as they said, was thick, rainy weather, strong northeast wind. So they had to put an umbrella up of sorts. The awning, as you see here, on top of the turret. Now, this is pictured in July of 1862, but this is the selfsame awning that would have been on top of the turret to keep the rain off of their nice Navy uniforms as they're observing the Monitor's sea trials um, just off New York there. I was also told that our reproduction awning uh, apparently took a little trip uh, during the storm this morning. Uh, so, hmm, history never repeats? I don't know. Let's go with that next little entry, though. At 9 p.m., release the wardroom steward. Well, let's consider that. The wardroom. It's where the officers would sit. They would uh, have their meals. They would refight battles, sing songs, read personal ads to one another in funny voices, and sing opera. Yes, they did all of these things on the monitor. We have documentary evidence from the paymaster who wrote about everything. So, while all of this is going on, it seems as though the wardroom steward had taken a bottle for a spin as well. Logbook indicates earlier that he was put in chains during the first dog watch, and he was released, as it says here, at 9 in the evening. But we're going to have to go to other words to fill in the story, and Paymaster William Keeler, who, as I said, wrote a lot, wrote to his wife about the goings-on in his strange new home. He does talk about the awning being put up like a tent. He talks about the notables, Commodore Gregory and others, coming to uh, observe and then he said there were arrangements made on board to give them a dinner suited for the occasion. This was going to be in the wardroom. And the preliminaries were fine, he says, but unfortunately we found upon seating ourselves at the table that the wisest plans of mice and men gang after glee. And then he asked his wife if he's quoted Burns right, which I think we all do, don't we? Again, some things never change. He says, for to sum it up all in one short sentence, the steward upon whom it all depended was drunk. I suppose he'd been testing the brandy and champagne before putting it on the table, Keeler writes. As may be supposed, it was a decided failure. The fish was brought in before we'd finished the soup, and champagne glasses were furnished for us to drink our brandy from and vice versa. The horror! The logbook reveals the name of the steward, one L. Murray. That would be Lawrence Murray, a 34-year-old native New Yorker, stood 5'6", with striking blue eyes, a fair complexion, and a singularly bald head. According to Keeler, Murray yelled and hallowed and begged and pled, but was pretty well sobered up before he was released and appeared a good deal humbled and mortified when he was released at 9. Yet he was shut up, he was uh, back at the bottle the very next day and was ironed and shut up in one of the chain lockers. 
So the log reads, the next day, alcohol will surely show up again in this lecture, but we'll stop for a little uh, wee dram at the moment. Lawrence Murray will show up again as well. One of the exciting things about the excavations inside the monitor are the, th the things that we don't expect to find. Here we have some glass shards actually excavated from the turret. You can see R-E-S-U-R-G-A-M and a phoenix head. Fairly common bottle. Here's a, a whole one from the Baltimore Glassworks, very popular amongst sailors. They would buy these and keep their whiskey in them. We found one in the turret. You can kind of imagine, maybe these guys were taking a wee shot of courage before they had to get out into those lifeboats. So alcohol shows up on board the monitor quite frequently. What I find exciting, though, about this piece, resurgum in Latin translates to I shall rise again, just like the turret did. Kind of cosmic. So let's go on with our logbook, though, shall we? At 10 p.m., Norman McPherson and John Atkins deserted, taking the ship's cutter and left for parts unknown. They were not so confident in the sea trials as everyone else seemed to be on board. But now here's where we have a cautionary tale for those historians out there among you. Because um, this has been mistranslated before, mistranscribed uh, before. Um, now, we know a little bit about John and Norman. Um, John was uh, from, let's see, John was from Baltimore. Um, so that could have been perhaps his whiskey flask, but that's taking it a bit too far. Um, I don't think he would have left it behind. Um, but uh, we don't know too much about uh, the two of them because they do pass from our story at this point. But because of wrong transcriptions of the monitor's log, um, which is actually held at the National Archives, going back as far as the 1950s, many an author has actually questioned why McPherson and Atkins were so attached not to the ship's cutter, but to the ship's cutter. Cat in German. And so you actually have history books and articles written about how John and Norman stole the ship's cat and left the monitor. <laughs> anyway, all of this happens before they ever leave New York. Quite an eventful day. Well, as we know, she did leave New York, although she almost didn't make it to Hampton Roads. And uh, though the monitor was supposed to be a seagoing vessel, no one was going to take any chances, so she did leave um, New York on March 6th because she had to wait out a storm, not unlike what we're dealing with today, um, and uh, head south with a, a fleet of tow, tow vessels and support vessels. Um, it was a moderate gale. Um, now, they... Um, actually write that it began as a force four on the Beaufort scale that they ran into, um, but the winds ramped up and the monitor nearly sank before she ever reached Hampton Roads. But we'll get her to Hampton Roads. She arrives on the evening of March 8th, 1862, and if they hadn't been aware of the impending uh, construction of the Merrimack, now the Virginia, the scene that greeted them would have been completely inconceivable actually more akin to a chapter out of one of the uh, newly popular fantastical novels out there than what was supposed to be a safely blockaded harbor. And even before the destruction that met them in Hampton Roads was visible, they could hear the booming and feel the sound of the guns as the monitor approached the mouth of Chesapeake Bay at 3 p.m. on March 8th. By 7, a local pilot had uh, come on board to help them get into uh, Hampton Roads, and as they arrive, they find the Cumberland sunk with flags still flying. Here you see the Cumberland eternally sinking in this image. The Congress ablaze and the Minnesota aground, and all very, very easy prey for the Confederate ironclad on the following morning. March 8th of 1862 did not have its equal until Pearl Harbor. As, as regards U.S. Navy personnel. 
But the monitor seemed to slow down as she came into Hampton Roads. Now, she was steaming quite, quite nicely at six to seven knots, but to the men on board, it felt like time stood still. All they could hear was the engine, but they, they just, it felt like everything had changed. And so they reach Hampton Roads and uh, eventually find themselves assigned to protect the Minnesota. Um, now, in the official reports... Um, you have uh, Navy officers writing that they were very, very pleased to have the monitor there, and they knew that they would be saved. And that's not really what happened, because apparently the guys on the Minnesota were yelling rude things at the guys on the monitor. And you only know that if you read their letters home. But they were good boys, and they didn't say those kinds of words in letters home to their moms and their sweethearts and their wives. So we can only guess what kinds of things the guys on the Minnesota were saying to the Monitor boys. Now, what the Monitor boys do remember, though, the most about the next day, March 9th, was the silence. Now, can you imagine that? Two large Dahlgren guns in that turret, firing every few moments, uh, shells, shot and shell hitting the turret, and you remember the silence. But like any very profound moment, especially one profoundly intense moment in which you could meet your death at the very next, all of your senses are heightened in strange ways, and so they remember it being extremely quiet. Now, as battles go, and we're not going to fight the Battle of Hampton Roads completely here today, but as battles go, it was largely uneventful. What's really more important is what happened after, but just to uh, sum it up, for about four hours from about 8.30 in the morning on March 9th, for the next four hours, taking a half-hour intermission, um, the two ironclads actually danced basically a, a slow pas de deux around one another. Um, and um, there were many hits on the turret, many hits on the Virginia, and... Uh, a few guys inside the turret of the monitor made the mistake of leaning against the bulkhead. Bad idea. The Virginia guys had found that out the day before. Um, but uh, So you had a couple of concussions, a few uh, bloody ears from the sounds inside the turret. You had men stripped to the waist and sweating in such a way that it felt like rain falling through the grating below into the berth deck. It was an intense battle for these men inside their continuously turning turret. They couldn't even see where they were firing. The Virginia at least had a bit of an advantage there. But a shot from the Virginia stern gun just after noon slammed into the monitor's pilot house, blinding the commanding officer, John Warden. The monitor veers off onto a shoal to assess the situation. The Virginia has to return to Sewell's Point because of a receding tide, Believing that the monitor has been disabled, the monitor turns around to go back into action, sees the Virginia heading away, thinks the Virginia has given up and is disabled, so they both claim victory. <laughs> of course, what really changes is what happens after, because you do now have the first engagement between ironclad vessels, um, the first ever. That's what makes them so important. They weren't the first ironclads, but they were the first two to fight. What also changes is uh, naval ship construction. Um, the turret actually frees vessels from the actual tyranny of the wind and the currents and the waves and from broadside tactics. Now you can turn your turret in almost any direction and fire at will. Just if you're on the monitor, don't fire towards the pilot house. That's bad. Now, after the battle, the monitor becomes a celebrity, a tourist attraction, and the object actually of a catch-22, like, kind of tug-of-war between the Army and the Navy, because, let's face it, those pesky Confederates had confounded General McClellan's brilliant Urbana plan, forcing him to resort to his less-than-brilliant Peninsular plan, and uh, what a part of his plan uh, revolved around neutralizing the Virginia before she came out on March 8th. Well, that didn't happen, clearly. But with the monitor now on hand, McClellan actually reasoned this would be very easy. And um, it made me giggle. I imagined the back and forth actually between McClellan and Goldsboro was something like this, and this really does sum up how the monitor was uh, viewed. You can imagine McClellan saying, hello, Navy. 
Could you please go obstruct the channel to Norfolk so the Virginia will not be a threat anymore? The Navy answers, no problem, Army. You just get rid of those shore batteries guarding the channel and we'll take care of it for you. Sure thing, Navy, but before we go in there, you need to take that shiny new monitor of yours and beat them down for us a bit first. To which the Navy replies, sorry, we can't risk the monitor on something like that while the Virginia is still a threat. And so it goes on and on in circular fashion, Navy and Army not cooperating at this particular juncture, and the monitor boys feeling as though they're being kept in a glass case because they cannot be risked, they cannot risk being captured and, uh, become something of a uh, trophy, not as well as a weapon for the Confederates. Ultimately, the monitor in Virginia would never meet again, although their crews would. Um, but I get ahead of myself, as we know. Um, the battle itself um, moves on into uh, popular iconography. Here is a, a particular poster you could hang on your wall um, following the battle. Even today, it becomes popular in imagery with the uh, well-known artist Antonio Benedetto, otherwise known as Tony Bennett, who painted this particular version of the Battle of Hampton Roads. And of course, those icons of the battle themselves, the Dahlgren guns, are something of celebrities themselves, just like the Monitor was then. Here we have one of the Dahlgrens being brought out of its tank. And there she is upside down in this particular instance, but uh, I don't know, she's right side up here. Absolutely beautiful. Sometimes not so beautiful when you have to excavate the interior, and if any of you know the story, no cat was found inside the gun, despite the claims of one of the sailors who wrote in 1885 that he had shoved the ship's cat into the barrel of one of the guns, plugged it up, and let the cat go down with the ship. Here we have one of our conservators gingerly testing out the barrel of the gun to make sure that no angry cat is going to leap out at him. But some of the items that we find on those Dahlgrens, those icons of that battle, are absolutely exquisitely beautiful. The uh, percussion hammer here of one of the guns. The uh, sight, the sight cover with John Dahlgren's initials there on it under the anchor. The elevation sight there. The hammer cover. Even the vent plug, leather, still exists, still there, concreted to the gun. And then this lovely thing, a nice sight to see after lunch. Does anyone know what this is? I'll take guesses. A ham? <laughs> okay, that's the best guess I have ever gotten. I like that one. But uh, actually, we, had, we, we thought we knew what it was. We weren't sure, so we had to x-ray it. You can see it's got some screws there in it, and it's got this little pigtail. Could be a ham. But in actuality, it is the sponge and worm for the gun, one of the gun tools. And we have found a complete set of gun tools, including the newfangled Robinson's worm that was brought on board after the battle. We know this by going back to the logbook. And as you can see from all of these pieces, the monitor was really quite, quite lovely. Now, I believe we're coming near to the end of our time, and so is the monitor, for uh, she did uh, have a few more stories to tell. So very, very quickly here, we'll blow up the Virginia, uh, May 11th of 1862, and get her out of the way. We'll fight the Battle of Drury's Bluff up the James River. This was when uh, you had the gun crew, some of the gun crews from the CSS Virginia manning the guns, at Fort Darling, just down the, the river a piece from here. Um, and only this time the monitor could not return gunfire because she couldn't elevate her guns. John Erickson had a beautiful vessel, but there were some things she just couldn't do. And there you have an image of the fleet um, up the James River there. Gray's hair restorative. I said that alcohol would come back here. Didn't say it would come in the form of a hair tonic, but in fact it does. In July of 1862, actually, you have an, an order issued saying that uh, the um, Union Navy could no longer have spiritus liquors on board, except for medicinal purposes. We found two of these on board. And you remember our steward, Lawrence uh, Murray. On September 2nd, the day after the uh, order went into effect, he drank himself silly, ended up in irons again, 
had a conniption fit on the deck because he was so drunk and rolled overboard. Sinking to the bottom of the James River, they found him three days later. Thus ends Mr. Murray. Um, we moved the monitor up to Washington, D.C. for her uh, re-outfitting, and she became a tourist attraction. And here, William Keeler writes that uh, ladies were particularly excited about being on board the monitor. Our decks were covered in our wardroom, filled with ladies, and on going into my stateroom, I found a party of the dear, delightful creatures making their toilet before my glass using my combs and brushes <laughs> and taking five-finger discounts of all kinds of things which end up in museums later on. So a lot of things that you see that are purported to be from the monitor were likely the result of the uh, ladies from Washington and some of their friends taking souvenirs, such as this dish that came to the museum in the 1940s. Now, in November of 1862, you had replacement uh, officers and crew coming on board, including one young man, Jacob Nicholas, from Buffalo, New York. He was a victim of peer pressure, he says, I did not want to, uh, come to volunteer for the monitor for her, but all the rest of the boys from our place did, so I joined with them. They took Jacob, did not take his friends. And so Jacob finds himself on board the USS Monitor December 31st of 1862. Now, Jacob was an interesting fellow because he's from Buffalo, New York, son of a tailor. He was 21 years old. He uh, was very proud of his beard, and um, he was um, a very, very proud son, wrote home to his dad and his sister, and uh, sent them all kinds of information about the monitor. But anyway, the monitor heads on to uh, her orders to Beaufort, North Carolina, um, and thus she has to pass Hatteras and the Graveyard of the Atlantic. So thus we come to the last day that I want to highlight very briefly as I know our time is coming to an end, and that is the day that she disappears, the day about which she speaks most eloquently from her resting place 240 feet below. The artifacts she's given up and the artifacts to which she still clings tell us many, many things, and this is a day that has many words written about it, but I'll show you some in images instead. Now, this was a moderate gale she faced that day as well. It was a 4-7 with the winds constant in the 30s and the seas at 20 feet. Today, down further east, it's a force nine, if that gives you a comparison. But a force seven was enough that night. As Shakespeare said, tis enough, twill suffice. Here you have, from the engine room, as the, this is to symbolize the engine as the water crept up into the engine room um, late that night on December 30th and into the 31st of 1862. A beautiful copper can for oiling the engine, something that would become in vain. The Worthington pumps tried as much as they could to keep the water from rising, but here you have the air chamber from one of those recovered pumps. It worked quite well, just not well enough. And that signal lantern raised at 1130, the distress signals say, send the boats from the Rhode Island, we are sinking, Rhode Island being the consort vessel. And here the image you have of the monitor and the boats leaving the monitor for the Rhode Island. Sixty-three men were on board that night, and the Rhode Island was determined that they were going to save as many as they could. But as the ship began taking on more and more water, officers and crew alike began looking at the situation, realizing to get into those boats, they may have to go into the water. So they tore their clothing off. William Keeler, the paymaster, writes, I divested myself of the better part of my clothing. Here you have a wool coat found inside the turret. Here an officer's boot, again found inside the turret. Buttons, all manner of buttons and other bits of clothing and personal possessions inside the turret. Keeler himself grabbed one of the awning stanchions on top, slid down a rope, grabbed one of the deck stanchions, and found himself in one of the boats heading to the Rhode Island. The clock, though, tells an interesting story. The clock of the monitor tells us that not all of the people got off in time. The clock stopped at a little after 1 in the morning. Here's the clock, never to run again, but beautifully conserved in our conservation facility. That signal lantern was the last thing the men ever saw of the monitor, and a little after 1, as the clock indicated, as all the records indicated, she disappeared, and the monitor was no more. Jacob Nicholas had written home on December 28th, 
to his dad saying, don't send me my Christmas package, I don't know where I'll be. They say we'll have a pretty rough time of going around Hatteras, but I hope it will not be the case. We found many things inside the turret, including about 30 pieces of tableware. We found the box that perhaps the tableware was in, that the drawer it was in, but perhaps not. For we did find this one piece here. I think you can see it. It says JN, we would assume Jacob Nicholas, lying right by one of two bodies that we found inside the monitor's turret. And here's the letter that we um, had acquired from Grenville Weeks, the surgeon, writing home to the Nicholas family, saying that your brother did his duty well and has, I believe, gone to a brighter world where storms do not come. This was Jacob Nicholas's last resting place, we believe. One of the other individuals inside the turret was found wearing these two mismatched shoes, a real symbol to the absolute turmoil as people were pulling on clothes and then maybe not getting enough off before they could get off the ship. We also found this fork inside the turret, not associated with the second sailor, but with an interesting inscription, G. Fredrickson, our friend George Fredrickson. 27 years old, two children, wife Magdalena at home in Philadelphia. When Magdalena applied for her pension, her widow's pension, she used this letter from the commanding officer, John Payne Bankhead, who had written to the lawyers, I do not think it would be right to encourage any hope that Mr. Fredrickson may have been saved as I look upon it as almost beyond human possibility. And in fact, George Fredrickson, who had been there from the very beginning, before she was the monitor, was there with her at the very end. And perhaps George Fredrickson could not be saved, nor Jacob Nicholas, nor the other brave young men, 16 in number, young actually and not so young, who went down with the ship. Yet the monitor has, through all these words, these images, these artifacts, saved their stories, and quite frankly, continues to give these stories to us each and every day. So I just say, who knows what the monitor may be able to tell us tomorrow. Thank you very, very much for listening to me today. I know many of you have to leave because it's right at 1 o'clock, but if anyone does have any questions, we do have a microphone somewhere around here if you'd like to ask. He's going to bring the, the microphone around here to you. Yes, you mentioned the salvage of the uh, Virginia. Uh, yes. And, of course, divers going down uh, to do all the patching they had to do to refloat the, uh, the vessel. Uh, what what uh, type of equipment did they have to assist in breathing uh, since there's no diving apparatus, to my knowledge, that other than be able to just be able to hold their breaths? Right. The typical diving apparatus that we're used to um, really comes in in the 1920s. Um, but you were able to dive before that, and there are hoses that um, they had raising up to the surface that they could breathe through, almost like a, a big snorkeling tube. So um, they were able to do that, and they went back in the 1870s, the same salvage company, and salvaged the Virginia. And many of her artifacts are uh, scattered throughout the Commonwealth at uh, this institution and others. As we looked at the picture of the monitor founder floundering in the waves, uh, a question that comes to mind is, what made them think it could stay afloat? Very good question. I, was, it, was it airtight? Did they, was it arrogance? Was it design flaw? No one knows the exact reason, but John Erickson designed the monitor to be watertight as much as any ship can be. The turret rested on a brass ring in the deck, which was, according to Erickson, a watertight seal. According to the U.S. Navy, that wasn't good enough, so they actually caulked it with, they jacked the turret up a bit, put a plated hemp gasket underneath, and caulked it. That could have been what caused the monitor to go down. As the turret worked on the deck, as, as the men said, water began gushing in in that tiny gap where the gasket was, was coming out. And so we think that may have overwhelmed her. There are other theories about it. 
But what I will say is that uh, one of the daughters of the Monitor, the USS Passaic, a larger, um, better built version of the Monitor, actually made it around Hatteras that night, that same night. Um, so monitors could be seagoing vessels, and they would become seagoing vessels, but the first monitor um, was probably a, because she was a prototype design, and also because the mistrust of uh, what would have been a watertight seal may have sealed her fate. You made the comment that the Monitor Ericsson had not turned the Monitor over to the Navy at one point because of non-payment. Uh, did, did the Navy ever take command of it? Actually, they did. Um, the idea was he would receive the last payments, or his consortium would receive the last payments after she'd been t um, tested under enemy fire. Um, so he, she was commissioned before the final payments ever went in. Um, now, what's interesting, though, is that the monitor was abandoned by the Navy in the 1950s. Um, so she is not a, a commissioned vessel. To say she's the USS Monitor today, today would be inaccurate, although we do. Um, but the Navy abandoned her um, to allow people to be able to go look for her and uh, salvage her or recover her. Uh, the design of the monitor appears to have, uh, be somewhat lacking. I was wondering how many vessels were built by this design and how long did it survive before it was replaced with, a, with an updated one? Very, very good question. Actually, through, during the American Civil War itself, there were about 67 monitor-class vessels either um, under contract um, or um, some commissioned and some in the process of being built. Um, and the, the monitor design, while it would fall out of favor by the turn of the century, really in favor of larger vessels and all big guns, um, you have your last monitor in the U.S. Navy, I think, up until the 1930s. Um, so it was a successful design for a time. Thank you, Thank you so very much. <laughs>